James 4. So our passage today continues on in the section that began at the beginning of chapter 3, where we saw this problem with the tongue, that it's powerful, but no man can tame it. And we even use it one minute to bless God, and then the next minute to curse someone who's made in his image, something that ought not be so. Then James said that this disorderliness and vile practice comes from earthly wisdom, from jealousy and selfish ambition. But there's an antidote, wisdom from above, wisdom that God gives that is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, which if you've been following through James, that addresses a lot of the issues the church has been having. Then he concluded, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Praise the Lord that we all live out of this wisdom perfectly. That we only see righteousness and peace in our church. That's just a joke, right? Hopefully you know your own heart better than that. We know it's not the case. And so does James. So right after talking about how we should be peacemakers, he starts our passage this morning by asking where our quarrels and fights come from. So let's look together and see what James says. Hear God's word from James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us alone, but you tell us about yourself and how we're to live in light of it. God, we ask that you would help us this morning that your spirit would illuminate to our hearts and minds, that we would understand, that we would know ourselves more deeply, and that we would know you and the grace and love you have for us more deeply. Work in us, help us, change us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the games that my 11-month-old daughter Lucy and I play is I'll lay on the floor and I'll pick up a toy, and then she wants to come and take it from me. And then she just like throws it on the ground, and I'll pick up another one, and then she takes it from me, 
and she just throws it on the ground. She doesn't want to play with any of them. She just wants what I have. And then if you put her together with another toddler, I think Izzy's experienced it a little bit, and she's hanging out with her cousin right now and seeing this. It could be something she hasn't played with in three months, doesn't really care about. But as soon as another kid has it, she's going to go take it from him. She wants it. She desires it. She covets it. I don't know if covet's appropriate for an 11-month-old processing how that works. As, uh, as Cassie mentioned, she's reading books on parenting. I just told Allison the other day, I said, we're going to have to like, move from just keeping a baby alive to learning how to parent. So, But they do that. They just take what's there, right? Other kid will be crying about it, but it just got ripped out of their hands, yet that's what they do. The truth is, we're not all that different. We just cover it up a little bit better. We'll manipulate a little bit. Oh, no, you want to play with this one so that I can take this. <laughs> we're not really that different. That's the beauty about kids, right? They haven't learned how to wash it the way that we do. It's beautiful sometimes. It's not when you're dealing with it. But that's what we see in us, and even in the church. We see that conflict in the body of Christ is a symptom of something deeper. That a fight is never just a fight. That our quarrels and fights actually come from us submitting to worldly passions and desires instead of to God. And as he did a couple weeks ago, with wisdom from below and wisdom from above, Jesus sets James sets before us two paths here, one of worldliness and one of godliness. And he shows us, one, that submitting to selfish worldly desires causes war with one another and then with God. And then two, that humbly submitting to God allows us to experience his grace. First, submitting to selfish worldly desires causes war. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your pleasures are at war within you? Or more literally, among your members? Some take this as internal conflict, but everything in this passage is the plural. And this whole thing is talking about how we interact with one another. So I think it's best to take it as external. Our passions and desires are at war among one another. They're in conflict with one another. And the question assumes the answer, yes. That is what's causing quarrels and fights among you. Then James says how it plays out. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It goes back to the worldly wisdom described last chapter. Jealousy and selfish ambition. And the language might seem a little extreme, like people in James' audience weren't literally killing each other. If so, I think James would have said a little bit more about it. But he's using this war language to show the seriousness of it. That in our selfishness, we are battling against our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's horrendous. But we like to take it down a few notches don't we? We're not fighting, we just see things differently. We just disagree and can't talk about it without blowing up. 
so we don't. I'm not bitter because you have something that I want, and so I avoid you. We're just at different stages of life and don't have that much in common. I don't want to murder them. I just wouldn't be sad if they moved away. Or we'll extricate ourselves and say we're too busy and spend our time on other things because we don't like how things have been handled. Obviously, we would have handled it better. We don't murder, but we write people off and carry on as though they don't exist. Even as we talked about problems with the tongue in the last chapter, and we'll talk about it again next week, we're pretty good at doing this. When there's a conflict, we try to gain allies. Don't we? We try to get people on our side through gossip and slander by sharing stories of people's wrongdoings, whether they're real, imagined, exaggerated. We speculate about other people's motives when we don't really know. And then we share that with other people to get them on our side. We spread dissension and bring more people into a conflict when we should be pursuing peace and forgiveness. Or we just avoid while our heart remains the same. We take the avoidance of fight as peace. That's not what peace is. Do you resonate with any of those? I've experienced all of them in my own heart. <laughs> what is it that's in your heart that's threatened by other people? What desire? What thing are you trying to obtain that's being threatened? We act like it's not a big deal. It's just how things are. But James is saying, don't you see the seriousness of this? You can't downplay it like that. You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You have been united to him and to one another by his spirit. We are members of the same body. Your feelings of enviness, envy, bitterness, or animosity toward one another in the body of Christ, the way we set ourselves up against our brothers and sisters is as horrendous as war. It ought not be so. And even in these, I'm not saying you haven't been sinned against. You probably have. But that doesn't justify lashing out or escalating conflict or writing people off or running away. Praise God that that's not what Christ did. So what did James say about the wisdom from above? It's pure, then peaceable, gentle, full of mercy. And so it's these submissions, these selfish worldly desires that cause war with one another. But even worse and deeper than that, when we submit to these worldly desires, we set ourselves up against God. Look with me at verses 2 to 4, the end of 2 through 4. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James pivots from the way we interact with one another now to the way we interact with God. As we learn in chapter 1, he's the giving God, that he's generous, that he gives wisdom without reproach to all who ask in faith, that every good and perfect gift comes from him, and yet we do not ask or we do not receive. We don't ask often because we recognize that what we really want isn't what God's giving This isn't the case. This is a hypothetical. But suppose Dan's been gone now for a while, right? And, you know, I kind of like this. It's good being in charge. I mean, obviously things are running a lot better. (laughs) Everyone here knows that. So I think maybe I should just be the senior pastor here and we'll figure out a way to work him out of it while he's gone. The coup he was joking about before he left, let's make it happen. If I started to think like that, do you think I would pray for that? I wouldn't, even if it's what I want. Because I know that that whole line of thought is rooted in nothing but my own pride, my own selfish ambition. It's worldly. It's not godly. So I wouldn't even ask. Because I know that's not what he's giving Or do we ask, but God doesn't give it to us because we don't want it for his glory and the good of neighbor, but we want it for ourselves. I think we do this when we can really easily justify the requests. That we can give a good reason for it, even if that's not true. I did this all the time growing up with my mom, you know. Like, tell her why, but that's not really the reason. When we pray for a bigger house so that we can use it for ministry... But the reality is that we're not content with what God's given us and we're jealous of those who have more. Or we pray for a different or better job because we're jealous seeing others seemingly enjoy what they're doing a lot more and getting paid more. Don't I deserve that too? There's nothing wrong with a bigger house or a better job or whatever else as long as it's not inherently sinful. As long as we're not putting our hope in them, we can pray for them and we can enjoy them as good gifts from God. As long as we use them for his glory and the good of our neighbors. But if we want them for ourselves, we're asking wrongly. And these worldly desires don't necessarily have to be causing conflict with others. Maybe you didn't resonate with any of the things I said a little bit ago. I would think if you really searched your heart, you would, but maybe you didn't. But it might be your desire to accumulate wealth. That's what we're told, right? We need more. We need better. It's your desire to have a position of power, prestige, or influence. Then you'll be something. You'll matter. Or anything else that this world's selling us. Anything that's contrary to what God calls us to. Any worldly, temporary thing that we're putting our time 
energies and effort toward? What are we doing? This is serious. James has to almost shock his audience so they'll recognize it for what it is. As you've been reading through the book, it says, my brothers, and that means brothers or sisters, or my beloved brothers. Again, my beloved brothers or sisters. It's that tone this whole time. But then in verse 4, we see this dramatic shift. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This language comes out of the Old Testament, where the people of God are his bride, carries through into the New Testament as well, especially if you read the prophets. God has been completely faithful to them. But they cheat on him time and time again. They commit spiritual adultery with other gods. And those of you who are married, you either know or you can imagine the pain and betrayal of an affair. And yet that's what we do to God when we befriend the world. We often take our sin and our sinful, selfish motives and jealousy so lightly. Like it's not a big deal. We presume upon God's grace and continue in spiritual adultery like it's nothing. Like we can have God and just keep a mistress on the side and it's fine. But if you want to be a friend of the world, you're setting yourself up as an enemy of God. It's helpful to recognize that friendship back then wasn't as casual like it is today, where I might say, I've got this friend, and I might mean I met this guy once three years ago. You know? It's more than that. Friendship then meant you were on the same page, that you had shared interests and goals, that your lives were oriented in the same direction. So friendship with the world doesn't mean being compassionate and kind to people who aren't Christians. We should be kind and compassionate and loving to those who are not Christians. It means sharing the same values and caring about the same things as the world does, which we cannot do. James says that when we do this, we're actually setting ourselves up against God, continuing the war language. We're making him our enemy, our opposition. I mean, we love the verse in Romans 8, don't we? If God is for us, who can be against us? Praise God for the truth of that. But what if we make God our enemy? Then who can be for us? James continues in verse 5. This is probably the most difficult verse in the whole book of James. It isn't quoting an Old Testament verse, but it's summarizing or alluding to quite a few, and that depends on how you take it. And there's debate as to the subject of the verse. So in the ESV, it says God is the subject. He is yearning jealously over the spirit he has given us. 
This fits with the Old Testament description of God being a jealous God, that he's jealous for his people, not in a petty way where he thinks you'll find something better. You will not. But in a way that he wants what's best for you. And it especially fits with the language of the people as adulterous. That's where the jealousy often fits in in the context of marriage. But the other way to translate it is to take the spirit as the subject, as the King James does or the old NIV. It says the spirit he caused to dwell in us longs after envy, that it's our spirit that's envious. And I think this is a better translation. The word for envy, the ESV uses jealousy, is only used negatively. So that doesn't fit with the use for God. And where God is spoken of as being a jealous God, a different word is used every single time in the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it doesn't fit. Also, since this whole passage, going back to chapter 3, has been talking about our selfish and worldly desires, it makes more sense that it's saying our spirits are envious. I think it fits better with that. And that's something that we clearly see throughout the Old Testament, that we're envying after other things, that we're trying to take them, that we want them. So submitting to our selfish desires causes war with one another, but more importantly, it sets us up against God. So what are we to do then? Especially if the testimony of Scripture is that this is what we do since the fall. Over and over and over and over. Even now, we confess our sin every week. Because we continue to do it over and over and over and over. Do we just need to do better? Do we just need to, I'm going to quit being so selfish. We should be less selfish, but no. That's not the solution. What we come to now is what one author calls the gospel according to James. Where he gives us this immense word of hope. Despite our jealousy, despite our selfish ambitions, our desires and passions that cause war with one another, despite the fact that we often befriend the world and set ourselves up against God and his purposes, despite all of that, James tells us that God gives more grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin, as the hymn goes. He goes on to quote Proverbs 3. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he paraphrases this again at the end as he closes in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So while submitting to selfish desires causes war, submitting to God in humility allows us to experience his grace. As we've seen throughout the book, James doesn't elaborate on what this grace is. He's more concerned with how it plays out in our lives. But he doesn't do it because the people already know. They know that the Son of God humbled himself. He became a man to take our sin upon himself. As our assurance of pardon said, he became sin who knew no sin. To die in our place, to reconcile us to God. 
As Romans says, while we were his enemies, praise God, to save all who trust in him, all who humble themselves and acknowledge their need for him, that they can't save themselves, that they need salvation from the outside, that they need a savior in Christ. All who confess and trust in him are exalted. That they're made new. That they're changed. If you have never trusted in Christ, trust in him this morning. And he will save you. Confess your sin. The ways you've rejected him. His authority. The ways you've gone after things of this world. And believe that Jesus took your sin that you might be saved. That you might be restored. Humble yourself by confessing your need for him and he will save you. For those of us who are in Christ, know the security that you have in your salvation. That though you still sin that though we still tend to align ourselves with the world, at least from time to time, that God gives us more grace, that as we sang, Christ holds us fast. Not that we might presume upon his grace and abuse it, but that you might be secure in your salvation and trust him all the more. But as James has been saying this whole book, he doesn't leave us as we were. Heard that in our assurance of pardon too. When he's in Christ, he is a new creation. He does not leave us as we were, but he gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us to obey. He changes us. We don't obey and earn salvation or earn grace, but we must Respond to it. So what should this response look like? James describes it in verses 7 to 9 where he rattles off these nine commands all right in a row of what it looks like. The last eight of which I think are describing the first. Submit yourselves to God. We often view submission as this unwanted and often passive thing that's kind of forced upon us. But that's not really what the word means, at least in the Greek. It's more like aligning ourselves under his authority with the commitment to obey. It's more like enlisting in the military where we say, I'm under this authority and I will obey the commands. Even if I don't fully understand why. Even if it's difficult. I trust you and I'm following you. I will submit to you. Next, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It follows, doesn't it? If we're putting ourselves under God's authority, that we have to resist and oppose his enemy. Which makes sense. Primarily, I think that looks like us resisting temptation in our own lives, often fleeing temptation what Paul says. And if we resist, he will flee. That's the promise here. It may not be right away. 
Maybe you've had the experience of resisting temptation only to have it seemingly increase until you give in. It happens sometimes. Yet God is there to forgive us our sin when we cast ourselves upon the cross. But as we resist more and more over time, He flees, becomes less and less that we can actually see real change. The flip side of this comes. These two can't go together. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The devil and God don't hang out together. (laughs) If God is coming near, the devil will flee. And our God does not play hard to get. Praise God for that. We don't have to jump through the hoops. He just says, come to me, and I will come to you. It's like the father of the prodigal son. If you remember that story where the son finally comes back and the father sees him on the road coming back and he runs out to him. That's what our God is like. This looks like repentance. We turn away from our sin and turn near to God. It also looks like making use of the ordinary means of grace, as we call it. Word, sacrament, prayer. These are the things God uses to reveal himself to us, where we can draw near to him and he meets us in it. Next come two commands indicating repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse and purify is language from the Old Testament sacrificial system so that we can come into his presence. And it's both our actions, our hands, what our hands do, as well as our motives and intentions, what our hearts desire. They're both addressed. And as James has done before, In chapter 1, he talks about this double-mindedness where we vacillate between the world and God. Where we want and think we can have both. We can't. He told us earlier that the man who is double-minded is unstable in all his ways, in all that he does. We cannot be friends with the world and with God. They are mutually exclusive. Finally, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This follows from the previous set, that if we actually desire to glorify God and submit to Him, how will we respond when we do sin? We won't make light of it. Laugh about it making jokes. We'll mourn over it. We'll weep because of it. He's not saying we need to be miserable at all times in our lives. Read the book of Philippians. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice. But as regards our sin, how are we approaching it? When was the last time you mourned or wept over your sin? I 
We so often like this easy grace to presume upon him. And as we submit to God, we will experience this grace all the more. Our obedience doesn't produce or earn grace, but it allows us to receive and experience it. If my memory serves correctly, I think it was Brian Chapel, I think in one of the little sacrament books out there, talks about God's grace being like water at a faucet. It's there. It's ready to come gushing out. We're not producing it, making it happen. We're just flipping it on. You just turn on the faucet and experience it. God is always ready to give more grace. So submitting to selfish desires causes war with one another and sets us up against God. But submitting to God in humility allows us to experience His grace. Now James doesn't mention what happens with each other if we do that. That's where it started. What causes quarrels and fights among you? But we already know, don't we? That if we strip away our selfish ambition and jealousy, we'll no longer war with one another. We'll pursue forgiveness and peace. We'll love love one another and actually lift them up. We'll want them to succeed. Because we don't care about being on top. We won't care if others have something we don't because we know that God gives us what we need. We'll actually look more like the body of Christ, encouraging one another, helping one another, building one another up instead of fighting and tearing one another down. We'll see the unity that Christ prayed for, for his church. That we can be one. And so we're left with a choice. James sets us before us these two ways of life. One of pride and one of humility. Which is the same way as saying, like the world or like our Savior. You can't have both. Which will you choose? And you will make a choice even now. Will you submit to God or will you submit to the world?